This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. Today, we're offering four conversations from episode 26, our discussion with patient advocates about their activities on International NASH Day. It evolved into a fascinating conversation about childhood and adolescent NAFLD and how to increase overall awareness among both frontline treaters and patients. After opening with an observation that Louise Campbell has pointed out the value of educating children on overall family knowledge since the earliest days of the National Tsunami podcast, I asked the panel about other groups they're working to reach. Louise starts by discussing efforts in the UK to take FibroScan into the public domain based on NHS funding of community centers and the nice guidance about the economic value of FibroScan use outside specialist and primary settings. She believes this will improve frontline patient education, with the FibroScan scores offering an opportunity to educate and motivate people who want to know their liver health, some of them are patients, others merely looking for a healthier lifestyle. She mentions Naeem Al-Khoury's discussion of FibroScan as the fifth vital sign in this conversation with Donna Cryer as part of International NASH Day. She then amplifies on her dialogues and opportunities she sees with patients she scans today. I ask about the socioeconomic status of the people she scans. She notes that her patients are higher in socioeconomic status, and patients who are lower in socioeconomic status tend to have more disease. She questions whether this is solely about diet or also about the far broader opportunities that higher socioeconomic status patients have to exercise in gyms, walk in their safe neighborhoods, mow their lawns, etc. I note that my question had more to do with the access to information and ability to absorb it in lower socioeconomic status groups, coupled with less favorable food choices and buttress this point with an anecdote about a family member I know who fights this kind of information. Gina Madison comments that she sees lots of people who say, and I quote, I don't eat a lot of sugar, end of quote, but then sees them eating foods with hidden sugars and like ice cream, not so hidden sugars. She also notes that ultra-processed foods are far more affordable than natural or organic ones. Louise gives an example about snack food portions in the UK where there are no fatty snacks in children's-sized packages. And Gina jumps from this to note that sugar drinks are a public health epidemic and that parents and grandparents do not know how many juices and other drinks are rich in sugar. As the conversation ends, I asked Marco Korniak about the different activities he sees in the 30 EU countries that ELPA represents. He talks about a walking and learning program in Cyprus, among other activities. And finally, he pinpoints the age 18 to 35 as the key years to drive good habits before the health challenges that come from bad habits start to emerge in patients' lives. As International National Day grows and globalizes, the actions of organizations like these will comprise an increasing share of the day's activities and also an increasing share of the volume, messaging, and energy behind the fatty liver public health debate throughout the year. Think about where all this is heading as you listen, and then just sit back, enjoy, listen, learn, when you're done. Join the conversation in our LinkedIn discussion group. So let's move on beyond children, not because they don't matter, but because I know how much time we have and there are other things that are probably worth talking about at least a little bit. What other kinds of activities have you been doing or other, or other, I mean, so Gina talked, for example, about focusing on Hispanic communities, a community that has a high genetic predisposition to disease and and, and diets that don't help. And frankly, one of the things none of us know right now well enough is the degree to which microbiome, what the interplay is between microbiome and genetics in some of these populations. So are there other specific subpopulations, Michael, Louise, Marco, that you've been reaching out to or that you've seen reached out to in your countries around liver issues, fatty liver issues, not just alcohol? Louise Campbell. I'll go in because obviously I do lifestyle scanning as well as our full clinical healthcare side. And yes, there's a lot of debate about if you just take scanning into the public domain. And William Alzawi last night was key on on this thing. If we don't have the data, we don't know. Well, if we don't get into there, of course we don't know. But people engage with 
with knowing and taking control of their own health and liver health is just part of that so the comment that we get is why wouldn't I want to know that I've got a bit of liver in my uh, fat in my liver because I can change that can't I yes so you motivate differently now it doesn't matter whether or not you're an enriched population of liver patients or a member of the public you should not have in my book or anything we're aware of excess liver fat so therefore does a fiber scan machine differentiate between an enriched population or just it doesn't it just scans the liver it might be scanning livers in clinical care that are enriched and therefore you're looking for something else you're looking for biopsy proven and analyzed results so we know what the scores that correlate for hepatitis c for hepatitis b naffled alcohol hiv co-infection for example so that's evidence-based but we are talking about a device that Nay McCory on um, GLI session with Donna, which was an excellent session, talks about being the fifth vital sign. Now, if that's the fifth vital sign, then it should be like the UK have now done is allow access to primary care and community care. So we get a totally different bite. But if I look at an, an enriched population of people who want to know their liver health in Australia, aren't necessarily liver patients. In fact, none of them was. The average level of liver fat is over 33%. Now that no stiffness, except in postmenopausal women. But the liver fat was abnormally high and excessively high, grade three by Fibroscan, which is a sort of safer range than to we know for a liver biopsy, for example. But it's a good gauge. So they engage and they change their behaviour. Now that to me, and that when we looked at Nice, one of the questions that Nice posed us was, what about the false positive that you tell a cirrhosis? And a doctor answered this question: We are going to tell them. We're going to investigate them. We're going to tell them to exercise, have a better diet, look at their health and treat them in that way. They are going to get healthier, even if they're not proven to have cirrhosis. And again, not one patient has ever said to me or any of my colleagues that I'm aware of, we didn't want you to investigate me for cirrhosis and I'm upset. The opposite. Thank you for looking. At least I don't have it. And I know more now. So you get an opposite effect. I get the two sides. And that's one of the privileges of being able to talk liver health as well as liver disease. That to me is vitally important in the role that we do. So do the liver health people that you work with have similar or different socioeconomic status or age compared to those who you wind up scanning because they're not healthy? I think the clientele that we have, particularly here and particularly more so in Australia, are probably higher socioeconomic. So you would not expect to see that level of liver fat in those people but they have the same conditions type 2 diabetes hypertension high cholesterol they have those common denominators that has never been uh, sleep apnea things like that but we always associate fatty liver disease with lower socioeconomic areas but we see death in those areas higher now is that because they have a higher level of fatty liver disease naffled nash or is it because people who are higher socioeconomic classes actually have better access to gyms to they take breaks they do spas they actually have better access to other things that lower socioeconomic classes don't have and at hard to reach populations they have green spaces because they tend to have gardens they tend to do do the lawn mowing things like that so there's lots of other things that we don't genuinely talk about we just label lower 
ethnic minorities, hard to treat patients as the ones with the predominant fatty liver. I think we need to delve deeper into that and, and not just classify it as that population. My question actually came from a different direction. Okay, although I didn't make it clear. I happen to live in a family that is socioeconomically quite diverse. And at the lower end, I have a relative who married a woman who had been through gastric bypass and has managed to maintain her weight. But the children they are raising, they've got chips out all over the house. And I did once make a comment to the mother that, you know, given that you've had bypass, the microbiome and all that. And she said, oh, no, in our case, it's going to be pure genetics. I said, it can't be pure genetics. How often do your kids eat healthy? She has no interest in enforcing a healthy diet on them and no curiosity beyond finding an excuse that it's not her fault if it goes wrong. And that's not something I find as often with people who are, say, less defensive and maybe, and, and they tend to be better educated. Gina, I see you nodding as I say that. You experienced something similar with your work in Pittsburgh? Gina Madison. Um, yes. Well, one of the things that I was going to say, just to kind of respond to that, one of the things that we hear so often in the work we do when we're talking to families and even that I see personally um, with, you know, my kids and their friends and those fa their families is this response, oh, we don't eat a lot of sugar. But then, Roger, to your point, then you're in their house or you see them at sports events and they're chugging down these Gatorades or they're eating chips or after, you know, a hockey game, they're all heading over to the concession stand and like consuming ice cream. And I think, um, oh, gosh, I don't even know how to articulate this appropriately, but there's this defensiveness, yes, and then also just this lack of knowledge where people think, oh, I'm eating healthy because I feed my children. Um, you know, we have a healthy cereal in the morning, which most cereals actually aren't even that healthy. Or, you know, I'm eating yogurt or I'm eating granola bars or all of these things that you don't even realize have a lot of hidden sugars in them. And then I think it's just become so commonplace now to snack that it's just like almost like this blinder is on that you don't even, you know, people either get defensive or they're just really not like consciously aware of what they're doing. So that's something that I just really see a lot. And then also there's this other factor too, where it's a lot cheaper to buy the chips over buying, you know, and, and easier than buying the, the carrots and the cucumbers and, you know, this fresh food as well. And people are so busy that they're not doing their own gardens and, you know, things of that nature that could make it cheaper. I think it's interesting that chips have never been produced in a children's portion. A packet of crisps, as we call in the UK, or chips elsewhere, have never been a child's portion size. And yet they account for t over 25% of an adult's daily fat intake. And when I talk to adults about that, when I scan them, they suddenly go, mm, we've got chips in the thing. And they start to change that behavior. So it's not, it's about awareness and education. Uh, and it does come back, you alluded to earlier, Roger. So education, education, education. And it's never too late to learn that education. It's never too young. But also what, what we think is good for us, if we take it in excess, I think there was an example today of two kilos of grapes a day. I had a guy who was eating seven kilos of tomatoes a week and somebody was eating, uh, drinking a bottle of olive oil a week. Now, those are calories you don't need, but because they were healthy foods. So again, it's education. May I add one more thing also? One of the things, I agree with you completely that education is so important. So an event we did recently, I asked, there was an audience and there were a lot of parents there and I said, who would give their child an alcoholic beverage? And people looked at me like I was crazy. But then I said, who would or has given their kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, a soda, a juice, a sports drink, and not, I'm not talking about the zero sugar, which those have different <laughs> issues as well. And almost everybody raised their hand and saw no issue with it. And when I tried to explain that, you know, it's almost like giving your child an alcoholic beverage from a liver standpoint, the way the liver metabolizes that sugar, people were just shocked. So there's the education, there's the awareness piece, then there's the education, but then 
one step further of how can you truly get people to be motivated to make change and take action? And that's what I find is the hardest piece of it. And that's something that we struggle with sometimes is, okay, we can provide that awareness and that education, but how do you get people to really understand this is truly, truly a public health epidemic and it's affecting our kids at a rate that I just don't think people are really grasping yet. And us as a patient advocacy community, you know, we just have so much work to do to really get people to be motivated to take that action and that change. So I have a question for Marco before that, a real quick observation. They say that humor is always a half a step away from the worst of reality. So my favorite light bulb joke was always how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is that depends. Does it want to change? But I think you could make the same statement about diets. How many people does it take to get one person to improve their diet? Well, that depends. Does the person want to do it? And does the person want to take the steps that it actually takes to do it? And motivation is tough. Marco, I'm interested. You represent 30 different countries in very different cultures and very different eating and food patterns. Where do you see commonalities and where do you see differences around these kinds of issues? Marco Korinyak. Thank you very much for the question. I think that we can learn from each other. But as I was listening to you discussing the major problems, I was just charting down what activities did our members do in order to, you know, educate the general public about the disease, about the problems. So, for example, I can list some of the few interesting things that they did. For example, in Cyprus, they organized a jogging for your liver and it was like an event with several members just going from one place, from place A to B and in that jogging or walking, they were discussing the the healthy lifestyles. And one of our members wrote a book on Mediterranean diet in order to raise the visibility of the book, the preference was written by the president of the country. So this was a really interesting thing. And then in Germany, for example, we tested children. So they had to drink a fresh juice and the juice that was like uh, manufactured in the factory. And in 100% did the kids respond that they like the artificial one better than the natural one. So this was a clear indication that the food industry is doing whatever they can to resell their products. They just don't care like what are they going to do with it. I, I heard a lot of discussion about the sugar. Yes, you can also decide today that you will eat less sugar, but you should be aware that there are other compounds and sometimes they are more harmful than sugar itself. So it's really difficult to like go into the store and choose things that would be like without sugar or, or good for your health. Of course, good for your health is also if you cook your own meal and I don't know about you, but with my busy schedule, this is like a very hard thing to do. I try to do it on Saturday and Sunday, but it would be recommendable that we f- that we cook our food because then you know what gets in. And just a last comment. So we were talking a lot about prevention. So one of the idea was also that we need to teach the kids how to behave preventably on their health so that they will do that between 18 and 35 years because later they will not have the same problems that maybe many of us are facing or will be facing. So when you are facing a problem, it's really too late. It's really late stage in the game. You could do something before that. And we need to try to raise this awareness and to try to educate the general public to behave more preventably. And this is not the way that maybe stakeholders that are making decisions on health, like politicians, would like find appealing. Because if you spend your money on a prevention, you will not see the results until the next election. So this is something that is not so appealing for the people who want to be re-elected. But if you do something that has the results immediately, that is something more like interesting. But but we need to like scale up as a civil society and demand more funds spent on the prevention.
education programs. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we continue our Easel Congress previews with a star-studded panel of KOLs. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.